Yes, of course. Barbera. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm not sure. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the soapily beautific hills of Encino, California, where industry and nature work hand-in-hand hand to create a better life for all of us. The following program is produced with a professional vengeance by Magic Matt Allen of the Outlaw Radio Network. I have the legendary Burl Bear program, True Crime Uncensored, my brilliant and talented co-host, Mark C.G. Boyer. Well, he doesn't have a microphone on, but we like the sound of your voice anyway. Oh, he's just speaking too softly. We'll slap him around. Howard Lapidus, manager to the star. Well, he may have more than one star, but but he's got uh, one star that people know about. That's uh, Dr. Drew Pinsky. Uh, he's, uh, Howard's been busy working, putting together the new uh, Unknown Rehab. <laughs> it's a rehab, celebrity rehab for people who are not celebrities. It's quite good, actually. It's quite good. Have you been filming it yet, Howard? It's all done. It's all done? Yeah, it's all done. I don't know any of these non-celebrities. Do I? No, no. <laughs> but you will know these people uh, about a week after they get on here. I bet I will. They'll be reality stars. Well, they'll be stars in their own right. Uh, but they're, it's quite an interesting group. I bet you. Uh, I'll tell you, we got a, a guest today that I've been watching him. Uh, uh, been doing a lot of appearances. This guy's on a, on a mission. <laughs> He's on a mission from God. Pat, how you doing? Oh, great. Thank you, Bill. This is uh, quite a situation we got here. I was at a, uh, an event the other night. There was a, a homicide detective from the LAPD. Actually, a real hot-looking black chick. And uh, I thought maybe she was somebody's daughter, but she was a fire Pat, 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 it's Howard. I, I, have, I you have to interrupt the story. <laughs> this is a guy, Pat, you have to understand. Burl Bear, if you don't know him, Hello, you'll get to know him. He... <laughs> He goes for the the hot women or the... Uh, you should hear what happens when we have a woman author on this show. Well, we had Erin Moriarty on from CBS, and she said yeah. me calling her a crime hottie meant more than all her Emmy Awards. <laughs> <laughs> she, did a, uh, she did a case, uh, she did a segment on this case, the, uh, the Chino Hills murder case. Oh, great. For those on, of you four, on 48 Hours in 2002 or three or something like that. This what? thing's been going on for a while. For people who are not familiar with the Chino Hills case, and it is fairly grisly, will you give us the backstory on it, please? Sure. Um, back, this is back in 1983, in, uh, in, on June the, June, the, uh, June the 4th of 1983, a, fifth, a family, um, a mom and dad, uh, the names of the Ryans, um, and their daughter, Jessica, who was 10 years old, and their son was eight and a half year old, and then they had a house guest who was 11 years old. Uh, they were attacked in the, uh, the Ryans uh, were attacked around midnight in the master bedroom with, um, with assailants using uh, four separate weapons, a hatchet, uh, a couple of knives, and a ice pick. And they put up a big fight. Uh, these were 41-year-old chiropractors, both of them in great shape and strong. The, the father, Doug Ryan, was a former Marine and had been an MT in the Marines, so he knew how to take care of himself. Uh, both the Ryans, the mom and dad, had loaded weapons in the, in the uh, master bedroom. And um, they were attacked. Uh, it was quite a quite a battle. They had uh, the, all the, the 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 parents and the daughter sustained numerous uh, defensive wounds. Uh, Doug made it from one side of his bed to the, to the other to his wife's side on on foot, and then all the way back to his own side. And he dies within his body's found within two feet of his loaded uh, rifle. No. 
But anyway, the family, the, the, the adults, uh, the adults are attacked. The little girl, the 10-year-old girl, she, she makes it outside the house at some point during this, uh, during this uh, invasion and has to be brought back in. And she sustains the most wounds of all the victims and has the most defensive wounds. So she really did uh, put up a fight. But uh, she, she, they're all killed in the master bedroom. Uh, the uh, little boy, uh, Josh, eight and a half years old, he's left for dead with his his throat slashed ear to ear. He's got a hatchet wound in his back. He's been stabbed in the chest. His lungs are collapsed. And uh, he should have, they thought he was dead, and by all accounts, he should have been dead. But the next morning, the, the father of the little boy who spent the night there, he came over to see why he hadn't come home to go to church. And... Uh, he looks at, nobody answers the door, of course, and he goes around to the master bedroom, looks at this big glass window, and he sees, uh, he sees this incredible scene. Oh, my God. Everybody's covered in blood, and he, first he thinks it's like they've been playing with this paint paintball or something, shooting paintballs at each other, just having some kind of a crazy game. Uh, but nobody's moving except he does see that little Josh does move. And so the father can't get in the... Um, can't get in the uh, master bedroom even though the door was open. He pulled it the wrong way. And he goes around through the kitchen and breaks through the kitchen door, comes in, and uh, he can see that Jessica's the first one. She's in the doorway. She's, 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 he touches her. She knows she's dead. Rigor mortis is set in. Mm. He checks his son. <clears throat> He's dead. And the Ryans are obviously dead. So he then goes over to Josh and and asked Josh who did this, but Josh's windpipe has been slashed, so he can't speak. And uh, Josh had stayed alive by pressing his fingers up up, up to his neck and uh, then going into shock. Amazing. And so they, they call nine, well, they, the phones don't work at that house, uh, not because they were cut or anything, but they just don't happen to work. And they go next door, the neighbor next door, and they call, they call 911, and... Josh is air-vac to um, a Loma Linda hospital, and he arrives there around 1.30, and um, they, they find him surprisingly alert. His vital signs are good, and so they devise a communication system with him just to get some basic, they don't even know, they don't know his name, they don't know anything about him. Um, so they they draw up this chart with all the letters of the alphabet in it and the numbers one through nine and they start asking him stuff like what's his phone number, what he gives, his name, his age, and uh, that kind of, he gives all this stuff correctly. And then they start honing in on who who was the who attacked you, and he goes through and he lets them know that it was three white men that did this attack, and. Um, there's a deputy sheriff assigned to this case. He's in, the, he's in the emergency room also. And then after the hospital staff gets this information, um, the deputy comes over and he, he does a hand squeeze method, and he gets the same information from Josh that is three white men. That night, around midnight, um, there was a couple. This is, By the way, this is Chino Hills is where this all took place. It's uh, Arabian horse country. The Ryans lived on a hilltop, a hilltop ranch, uh, many acres, and they had like 14 Arabian horses in their barns and fields. They, uh, and all their neighbors are horse people. So 
there had been a, an event, that, uh, some kind of a race that day, and one of their neighbors was dropping off a trainer on the only road that leads away from the leads down from the Ryan's house. It's just this one one road in and out. And as they're exiting, they're trying to exit this driveway. This car, this car is hurtling down the road away from the Ryan's house, and these people have to stop. Uh, and they look in the car and they see three white men. Uh, and so what, it sounds fairly obvious that three white men did this horrible crime. It sure does. Uh, they they uh, t they call the, the once this is known the next day that the uh, the uh, family's been killed. This couple calls up the sheriff's office and reports these three white men and what turned out to be the Ryan stolen station wagon. Whoa. That they had driven off in the Ryan's own car, which the Ryans had left the keys in. Now, um, two days before these murders, uh, there, was, there was a convict at, at Chino Hills, uh, California Institute for Men at Chino, Hill, at Chino right. by the name of Kevin Cooper. He was classified the night before as minimum security, and they made a big mistake when they did that because he had escaped from two other prisons in Pennsylvania before. He should have been in maximum security as a high-risk escapee, but they, they screwed up the paperwork, and they classified him and put him in minimum. And the very next day, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he just walked through a fence, a hole in the fence, of the minimum security part of the California Institute for Men and uh, makes his way to a lumber yard and he hangs out there on top of a big stack of lumber he climbs up and waits till, waits till dark everybody has left and then not knowing where he is he's, he's from Los Angeles Kevin Cooper was arrested on two burglary charges in Los Angeles and was serving a four year sentence uh, he makes his way across a couple of state highways, and then he gets into this Arabian horse country. And he walks up this he walks up this hill, <clears throat> and he sees this is many hundreds of yards up. He sees a garage door with a light on, and he could see that the door was slightly ajar. So he goes over and, and opens the garage door and looks in, and there's nobody there. And uh, he goes, he, he lets himself in. And he finds, he searches, the, eventually searches the house and he sees there's nobody in there. In fact, all the bedrooms are empty except one. Um, he, he holds up in this house for two days. So the people are out of town on vacation or something? Yeah, they only use it periodically. There's one, one family that comes in oh, one week in a month. Hmm. Well, on that Saturday, now this was Friday, the day that Kevin escaped. On Saturday, about 10 in the morning, the woman who who does live there but wasn't staying there at the time. She went. She came in to get a sweater that she she left there. And now this really uh, alerts Kevin to the danger of staying there any longer. Yes, I would imagine so. And uh, she doesn't see him. But when he when he when she leaves after like three minutes, uh, he decides he'll leave that night and he'll wait for dark. You know, he's the he, Kevin Cooper's black. He's the only black person in Chino Hills. And uh, he prepares himself. He he he, he shaves his beard off. His uh, cuts his cuts his sideburns down and rebraids his hair into <clears throat> into cornrows. And to change his appearance. But um, and then around eight forty-five that night, he leaves the house and he goes down the same way he came in and down this long uh, sloping hill 
down to an intersection in Chino Hills, and he starts hitchhiking uh, to the Mexican Mexican border. And he takes it takes him two rides, but he ends up in out on the on the United States side of uh, Tijuana, mm-hmm. and he has not, doesn't have a dime on him. And he spends that night in a bus station uh, lobby, and then the next day he crosses. Uh, he steals a woman's purse, you know, in a in a mall, and then um, on the U.S. side, and then you know, she happened to have like God, one hundred and five dollars and quarters in this purse. Maybe <laughs> she was at the casino or something. Yeah, and uh, forty dollars in cash or so, and so now he's set for the time being anyway, and he goes into Tijuana and checks in it checks into a motel that costs six dollars a night he pays for it in quarters <laughs> that, that night his girl he calls his girlfriend in pittsburgh and <clears throat> she says to him uh you're wanted for <clears throat> murder in a strange sounding town in california you know chino hills and that's the first he's heard about this you know he knows he's wanted for escape but being told he's wanted for murder and and then that night he sees his mugshot on the TV station in Tijuana when he's at a bar having dinner. So this is the first he's, he's got of this. And he then takes a bus ride the next day down about 80 miles further south into Mexico to Ensalada. And um, he hooks up with a guy on a boat, a guy with his wife and a five-year-old daughter. And uh, he spends the next, well, this is the biggest Manhattan California history is looking for him. Um, why, why, wait a second, let me back up here. If you've got two witnesses, including the victim, who says well, three white guys, that's and, right. the, and the station wagon has been stolen from the scene of the crime With by three, three, three white, white guys. guys. And we got three one black guy. guy. We got one black guy in, in a, a 200 mile radius. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> so, why, I mean, why are they not out looking for the station wagon with the three white guys in it? Well, the uh, three day, three days after the murders, and this would be a Wednesday after the murders were discovered. They find that um, <clears throat> they find out that this. Now, Kevin, this house I didn't mention to you, this, this house that he holed up in was 125 yards below the Ryan's house, what, what, what it, we call the hideout house. So that's 125 yards below. So when they find this, uh, this escaped convict's fingerprints all over this house, they, they change their thinking, and, and they, put, they say, well, uh, we're going to forget about the three white guys. It's this uh, black escape convict. That makes no sense. Oh, yeah, I guess that's, is that the easy way out? Is that what we got going here? It's pretty much the easy way out. And what, one of the things that motivated them to take the easy way out was uh, this was the biggest crime in the history of San Bernardino County. It was like, it was, you know, everybody knows about the Tate LaBianca, the Manson murders, etc. Well, this was as bad or worse than, you know, the carnage at this murder scene. And it was uh, uh, so astounding that all the, all the brass from the, from the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department, the brass from the district attorney's office there, and uh, 75 people came through that, uh, crime scene, uh, you know, right walked right into the master bedroom in the first 24 hours of that. Oh after the, hadn't they heard of Locard's principle of exchange? No, they hadn't heard of that. So they contaminated this crime scene so bad that their response the next day was to take to take the take everything out of it. 
they took the uh, walls. They took the walls out. They took the walls down to the studs. They took the carpeting out, the bed, all the furniture. What? The, where the hell did these people learn how to do an investigation? They didn't. They just they just botched it so badly that they had no ability now to tell anything like uh, where the you know the order the order of the desk, which would have been important to know where different people were at different times. But this violates absolutely every rule, every rational process of investigating a crime scene. It does. They, they blew it. In fact, they even had the stupidity to... There was blood. Uh, these, these, these assailants, they washed off after these crimes. They were covered in blood. Um, the assailants were, and they used... The, the Ryan's had two bathrooms. They used them both. There was blood in both sinks where these assailants had washed their hands off and, and their faces and clothes. Um, there's 144 uh, wounds delivered to these people. There's four amputations. Uh, there's 26 broken bones administered during this attack. And this is, you know, just, uh, there's blood everywhere in this room. And um, they could have found out so much if they had treated that crime scene properly. And the fact that there was four weapons used, you know, this just kills me, this fact alone that would would tell you, it screamed to anybody that this was multiple assailants. Yeah, of course. That, that one person, you know, couldn't or wouldn't, wouldn't have any reason to, use four weapons. I mean, the whole and, thing uh, is insane. And for the little girl to make it outside during the assault, and we know from the, from what the medical examiner found, that she died before the mother did because the mother at one point was cradling her. The mother's drippings were on the little girl. Uh, and the little girl's blood was smeared against the mother's chest. Um, now, as I mentioned, they had, Mrs. Ryan had a loaded uh, Ruger pistol, a pistol in her, in her nightstand. So if the little girl's outside of the house and the mother's still alive, she'd have gotten the gun and killed these guys. But, you know, that's if there's one assailant. If it's Kevin Cooper, then he, while he's out tracking down the little girl, the mother's free to get the gun. Yeah. So that really was, that's probably the most incredible thing that they could overlook was the four weapons. So your book is called Scapegoat. So obviously this thing was botched, and they made Cooper the scapegoat. Who drove that bus? Who, 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 where did that start, and how did it start, and how did they frame him? Well, San Bernardino has this long tradition of passing the, the sheriff's job off from from one hand-picked one hand-picked person to a, to a successor, and there was this you know, that year uh, they give, they give the the new guy like uh, the, the the incumbent he resigns eight months early and lets his hand-picked successor have eight months before he has to stand for election, and this guy this this person he that took the job as sheriff by appointment was named Floyd Tidwell. And he had this uh, oh, tobacco-spitting, you know, tougher-than-nails image. And once he said it was Kevin Cooper, once, once you know, this kind of solved their problems about fouling up the, uh, the crime scene on the biggest crime, biggest crime in history of the county, he became the scapegoat uh, for, for Sheriff Tidwell. 
Now, see, what boggles my mind, aside from the whole insanity of this, is that we think that any rational human being who works in law enforcement, when you have a case this horrifying, and you have witnesses, including the victim, who say, it's three white guys, they still steal the car, they drive off in the car, to not go looking for these guys in the car makes no sense whatsoever. No, no it doesn't. They, they did put out an APB for three white guys in the stolen station wagon the first day, first couple of days. <clears throat> that was what. That was the way they were going until they found Cooper's prints all over this hideout house. Yeah, could we get to take a 60-second break, Pat? We'll be right back. All right. On True Crime Uncensored. in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting, did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, now available at the iTunes app store. Hi, I'm Burl Bear, and as you know, I deal with a lot of psychopaths and mentally unstable people. Not just here at Outlaw Radio, but professionally as a true crime author. My latest book is called Headshot, and it's about two, yes, count them, two murdering psychopaths. One born that way, and the other made that way by a combination of head injury and multi-generational incest. Now, the book is called Headshot. It's available right now in paperback or an electronic download from Pinnacle True Crime. Headshot by Burl Bear, and he's one of my favorite true crime authors. Well, you can get it anywhere fine books are sold, online or at the store. Censored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. Anyone else? Who else? Don't forget Mark. Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. And then we got And sometimes today. Marie Mackey Esquire. She was your last wait. She was? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Who produces Produced this? Produced by Magic Matthew Allen. And who's the lady blonde? Who in turn is produced by Lori Daly Jr. So I took a week off, and uh, Marie was here. That's, well, yeah. that's nice to hear. Yeah, she's better looking than you are, Howard. There's no question about that. <laughs> There's just no question about that. book is called Scapegoat, and uh, I mentioned I was at this uh, event the other night, this, uh, that foxy uh, chick from the LAPD. <laughs> Five years as a homicide detective. She must have started when she was 12. I brought this case up to her, and she rolled her eyes and said, Oh, that is a bad one. That is really a bad one for law enforcement, the more that's coming out about that. But uh, let's. Uh, Mark C.G. Boyer has a question for you. So they find all the fingerprints in the hideout house. Did they find any of his fingerprints in the main house? Uh, no, Mark. There were no fingerprints of uh, Kevin Cooper's in the in the, in the Ryan's house. Uh, and here, and, and, and more more interesting to me to that because you could all somebody could wear gloves, etc. But th this, as I was mentioning to you, was a tremendous battle going on there in this uh, 
master bedroom. I mean, these people were fighting. They're very fit, capable, strong people, and they were fighting. But not one hair, not one hair of a black person was found in that master bedroom. What was the condition of uh, Cooper's, you know, Cooper when they when they got a hold of him? Were any scars? Any any sign of that this guy was in a fight of that nature? No, uh, no. Uh, Cooper so, evaded. Cooper evaded uh, capture for. About five, about five weeks. Okay. He evaded the biggest manhunt in California history for about five weeks. Yeah, but I'm going for scar or something. I mean, a, a fight like well, this is going to, you know, you know, there's going to be some mark. Well, here's what, here's here was here's what here's what the marks were. The um, these these three assailants, these three white guys that drove by in this uh, Ryan station wagon, they were they were so stupid that they went. There's a bar, uh, a, a, a bar about about a mile and a half down from the Ryan's house. Uh, there's a local bar that's only frequented by horse people. The Ryans used to go there themselves. And after the after these murders, these around midnight or so, these guys, these three white guys, come into this bar. No one had ever seen them before, and uh, they are really spaced out. They're on some kind of drugs. Uh, one guy lays his head down on the table, brings the bar manager over, and says, "What's wrong with your friend?" And one of the guys says, "Well, he's had a really hard night." Yeah, I've been busy killing people. When it was midnight of what day? Uh, this is June the fourth. Nineteen eighty-three. The murder took place. The murders took place when that evening. That was that, at, that, that, so at, that, mid at midnight, around so these, midnight that these, night. And so, right afterwards, these guys, these three guys, show so, up in so this bar. The three wise men decide they're going to go to a bar after they do this. That's right. Okay. And they're going to have some beers. Well, you get makes perfect sense. Okay. Yes, yeah. yeah. And they order some. They order a round of beers, and uh, after the. Um, the bar, the bar manager sees that they, these guys are really spaced out. She, she tells the, the bartender to cut them off after this one round. But there's three very attractive white women in this bar. And these, the, two of these guys stand up and approach them, come over to them. And um, one of the women is a phlebotomist, a, a person who takes blood. And she, she says to these two guys, uh, I hope you... You must not realize this, but you're covered in blood. Oh, Jesus. There's blood all over your face. It's all over your clothes and your arms. So it and, probably um, didn't take, I can't say the word, but it didn't take her skills to, to figure that out. She could see the blood. Right. And lots of, she said lots of blood. Not good on the pickup uh, either. <laughs> not good on the pickup. Yeah. Not a good pickup line. Hi, I'm covered in blood. Yeah. So pretty much after that, they, they gave her a very strange look, and they leave. And um, one of their responses after they leave is they, they get in a car. Now, this is a different car than the Ryan's, although I'm not sure about that. But I think they had left their car at this bar parking lot. So they so get they in the car, murders? and one of them takes this. One of them, two of these guys have T-shirts on, and one of them has coveralls on. Uh, the guy with coveralls is, are very bloody. The coveralls are bloody. And the, the guy with the T-shirt, his T-shirt's bloody, so... Outside the bar, as they're driving by it, one guy takes off a tan T-shirt and throws it on, like, the driver outside the driver's window, and the other guy <laughs> takes off a blue T-shirt and throws it on the passenger side of the road, right across from this bar. They're just getting rid of this incriminating stuff. But oh, the, guy yeah. with the, the guy with the coveralls, he, he, that's all he's got. He keeps them on, and he eventually gets, drives to his um, girlfriend's house in Mintrone, like 45 miles away. He arrives there around, you know, 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the morning, 
and he comes in with these coveralls on, and he, he just wants to get rid of them. And he takes them off and throws them in their walk-in closet, and then um, changes into a, changes his clothes, uh, puts on a leather jacket, and gets on a motorcycle and drives away. He's only there like five minutes. Well, like two days go by, and the woman takes a look. The girlfriend takes a look at these coveralls because she could smell them. Right. And she picks them up and. She, she, she says, God, they're covered in blood, plus they have white horse hair on the bottom of them, you know, Arabian, Arabian right. horse hair on the pant legs. So she calls the sheriff's department. Now, this would be the same day that, that Sheriff Tidwell says Cooper is the lone assailant. She calls the sheriff's department in Yucaipa, um, and they send out a property manager to collect these coveralls. And they spread him out on, he's impressed enough that he has his supervisor come out and, and come out and make a special trip out. And he and the supervisor look at him, they spread him out on the, on the, on the front of the uh, squad car. And uh, he, he, he says, yeah, this look, sure does look like blood and uh, horse hair. And they're caked in blood. They're not just little, like little patches of blood, they're just caked. So he, he bags them. And he returns to his substation and writes a report to the head guy, the head homicide guy. And the woman said, I think these pants are, these coveralls are connected to the Chino Hills murders. That's what she told him when she called up. That's what brought him out there. And, um, well, what happens to these things? Well, well hang, hang on, I'm missing something. Uh, how did she know? I mean, he was there for five minutes. Did he say, I, I, I killed these well, people? No, it might have been on the news. Oh, no. No, no, he doesn't say that. Well, how does she know or think that they're connected to the murders? Well, because the uh, the murders, their murders are big-time publicity. You know, they're publicized everywhere. Everybody's heard about these murders. Right. And here we are, you know, uh, here we are in her closet. Right. Uh, these uh, coveralls caked in blood. And her boyfriend, by the way, happens to be a, a convicted murderer. Okay. So, got good so, taste in so, so she was just doing some basic math is what was going on. She about. was. Right, okay. He had killed, uh, this boyfriend named Lee Furrow, he had killed a... 17-year-old girl, uh, five years before, cut her body parts up, threw, threw, threw them away into a canal, and the body parts were never found. He was arrested, and he turned state's evidence, said, yeah, I killed her. I cut her up, and threw her body parts here, but I was doing this at the behest of a guy named Clarence Ray Allen, a gang leader in that, in that area. At the behest of. At the behest of. He had a good vocabulary for murder. Help help me out, though, at the behest of. Yeah. I I mean, why? He he killed this person because this guy put a gun to his head or told him to do it or what? That's right, because the guy told him, he said, if you don't kill her, I'll kill you. Okay. That kind of, that's what, that's his story. Okay. So anyway, he strangles her to death and then cuts her up. And he, he turns state's evidence against this gang leader. And by the way, he's the last person, Clarence Ray Owens, the last person ever executed in the state of California in 2006. He was one nasty dude. And um, Pearl turns state's evidence, and he gets four and a half years on a second-degree murder charge, even though he was the murderer. Right. And admitted to being the murderer. So he, after, and about a year before the Chino Hills deals, he is released uh, from, from prison. And so he's back, in, he's back in the population. He's back in circulation. Got himself a girlfriend in, where was that, Ventura, did you say? In, in Mintrone. Ventrone? Okay. Mintrone, yeah. M-E-N-T-R-O-N-E. Okay. And um, he's back in business there. So anyway, 
the cops, the, the guy, the, the property guy, he writes this report up to the head guy, head, the head homicide detective on the Chino Hills case, and uh, and, and the, the woman had told him and said, I, I'd like to really, I really want to talk to um, a homicide detective. You know, you're a property clerk. I want to talk to a homicide detective. I've got more to tell you. But nobody ever followed up with her. Oh, they, they had Cooper at this point, and they weren't interested in any new evidence that pointed well, they to anybody else. They don't want to solve the crime. They just want to look like they did something. They could have solved the crime that day. Um, she would have told them. They never did come to see her, but here's what she would have told them. She, she would have told them about her boyfriend being a convicted murderer, that she went back to the washroom where he hung, he hung his tool belt, and uh, all his tools were there except his hatchet. And two, and, and three, that he was no longer wearing, he didn't have coveralls when he left home that morning. He had, a, he had on a tan t-shirt that she had bought for him. It was uh, Fruit of the Loom, size medium with a pocket in front. Now let's go back to the, the bar. The next, the day after the murders, a woman, just a citizen, driving by the bar, she sees on the, on the curb, in the gutter, uh, a bloody blue T-shirt. And she, she calls it in, and the cops come out and pick it up and dispatch. They log it into the dispatch logs. And that sets off. They say, well, we might as well do a more thorough check. And the next day, they find the tan T-shirt, a bloody tan T-shirt on the other side of the road from the bar. It's fruit of the loom, size medium, with a pocket in front, just like this woman would had, would have told them if they if she if they'd have asked her. So um, they have, you know, with that that information right there alone. I mean, they had to get. We know the guy's name's Lee Furrow. Uh, it's over. Case is closed. These guys are saved. But no, they want Cooper. I mean, this is so insane. It's like something from an alternate reality. It really is. I mean, uh, and pardon me, but I've got questions for you, but I, I'm, I'm afraid to ask them. Uh, they're, you know, it's just, there's so many holes in this thing, it's crazy. And and you've been following this case, I and mean, this has been a passion of yours, and you've got the book and everything, which I look forward to reading. But it is, uh, wow, is all I can say, is wow. It really is. Go ahead, Mark. Uh, <clears throat> um, so I, I'm, I reviewed the material um, listening to this story. And I'm, oh, just as a layman, I could have blown the prosecution's case out of the water. No, a competent, you're, not that, you're not that smart. A, <laughs> a competent defense attorney should have yeah, shot these idiots in the foot. No, absolutely. That's all he needed was a competent defense attorney, but right. he, got a, he got it instead. He got a public defender who, uh, even though the judge offered him to have uh, co-counsel, because this is a big case. Biggest case, in, as I say, the biggest case in the history of this county. The judge said you, you should have... You know, co-counsel at at the table, and uh, he said, "No, I do better working alone." So instead of reading the discovery, you know, when the the the, the, the prosecution has to turn over all the all the so-called right. you know material they have, they, you know, police reports and all this, and uh, one of the reports they would have they, they they turned over was this deputy, this property manager, saying that there were bloody coveralls. Well, the defense attorney didn't read the discovery. Oh God! He was so, he was so bogged down in in seriology, trying to trying to make himself into somewhat of a blood expert himself, because they were going to contend that a drop, a tiny drop of Kevin Cooper's blood, was found in a remote location of the Ryan's house. You that know, sounds almost, like BS to me. 
Yeah. So anyway, he studied up on seriology, and he became quite proficient at you know doing these terms. But he didn't read about the coveralls. And so, um, in December of, or November, December of that year, the the property clerk, getting no response from um, anybody in homicide, his uh, he goes to his supervisor. His supervisor came to him. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was supervisor's idea. And he told the property clerk clerk to destroy the coveralls. Oh Jesus! So they throw them in a, they throw them in a dumpster, and that's the end of the coveralls. Now the blue T-shirt. Are these guys um, smoking their belt? The blue, t- the blue T-shirt is never is never turned in. The only T-shirt the cops turn over is the tan one because if there's two bloody T-shirts, that kills their Kevin Cooper is the lone assailant theory. So they they hide or destroy the blue T-shirt too. Oh. So the defense attorney only has the tan T-shirt to go on. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I, I, I hate to interrupt, and I, and I don't want to go to the end of the story, but I'm afraid. Are these people still around? <laughs> are, are they retired? Are they dead? Are they out of the business? Are they, are they still in charge of people? Are they still working for the people? Well, the, uh, assist, assistant, <clears throat> the, the main prosecutor is gone. The, um, the homicide detective who led the case, he, he died. Before he died, though, his name was uh, Bill Arthur, before he died... He spent his last couple of years in the homicide department going going around to the new homicide detectives and giving a presentation on how not to conduct a crime scene. There you go. How not to make the mistakes that we made in the Chino so, Hills case. So he found religion. So he, he admitted this. We yeah. acknowledged the fact they screwed that yeah. one up. He, he admitted that. But meanwhile, the guy's still in the slammer for the murder. He is. He's been in since... His trial was in 1985, and he's been on death row for now more than half his life. He's 54 years old. He went in at age 27. If they flip the... The The switch? Well, so to speak, if they start killing people again in California, how close is he to the top of the list? He's fifth. Wow. So why is he still in prison if we have all of this evidence clearly showing he didn't do it? He's still in prison for, for only, there's only one real reason he's still in. The, the federal district judge who heard his habeas appeal, habeas corpus appeal in San Diego, named Marilyn Huff, she railroaded him just as bad as the uh, San, why, San, why San Bernardino she, County people why? did. Why would she, what, what motivation did she have? I understand the motivation of the guys in San Bernardino, they screwed everything up, but why does this judge down in San Diego, who has the ability to look at the evidence yeah. and, and, and is appointed for life, and so if she makes controversial, the whole point of appointments for life is so judges are free to make controversial rulings, you know, and not get fired for them. Right. Uh, here's, the, here's, the, here's what's typical of federal ju- judges. Cooper had, uh, he's, you're entitled to a habeas corpus appeal, and he had one in the 90s. Well, let's say 1997 or so, and Judge Huff uh, heard that appeal. She only, she only read it. She didn't even have hearings. Uh, and she turned down his habeas, his habeas appeal. So once a judge turns down a habeas appeal, it doesn't make them look too damn smart if they come back and overrule themselves. They just don't do it. I called up. There's a habeas corpus center in San Francisco that takes it. That, that's their whole job is helping helping death row prisoners to do these habeas corpus. I asked this the, the executive director, named Ann Hawkins. I said, 
Can you tell me of any federal judges who've ever overruled their first habeas? If a person, it's very rare to get a second habeas hearing. But sometimes people do. Let's say less than 2% of these cases get second habeases. Have any of, any federal judge in the United States ever overruled themselves? She said no. Oh. You're screwed. <laughs> so, so, Judge Huff, when it came to issues like, um, like the blue T-shirt, for example, so this is what they call a Brady violation where the prosecution is compelled to turn over evidence that is, you know, that tends to prove the innocence of the person on trial. Right. Um, that the blue T-shirt was a perfect example of a Brady violation because they never turned it over. So Judge Huff ruled, even though the blue T-shirt was found on a Tuesday and the tan T-shirt was found on a Wednesday, in different sections of the of this road out in front of the bar, one's on one left side, one's on the right. She ruled that uh, well, since the guy who collected him, the deputy who collected him, is dead. And uh, Sergeant Arthur, the head guy, head homicide guy, he's dead. I'm just going to rule that the tan T-shirt and the blue T-shirt are the same T-shirt. Whoa, 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 whoa! How, how is that possible? Whew. It's not. It, it's it's really it's it's mind-boggling. But that's what that's what she ruled. They're the same T-shirt. But that, Bob, I'm I'm speechless on that. That's too bizarre. Now that would have given. See, Cooper would have been entitled right then to a new trial. That's what, if you get it. If you get an established Brady violation, that calls for. That's the Supreme Court ruling, 1963. That entitles the plaintiff to a new trial. That's a, that's a prosecutorial misconduct. That's very bad prosecutorial misconduct. It's it's a, the first degree of it, destroying evidence. Well, I, I mean, the, how any human being can sit there with a straight face and say these are both the same T-shirt? And so it's Incredible. okay that the second one wasn't handed over. Incredible. It was cloned. All right. So this guy, so Kevin Cooper screwed Blue, okay? I mean, sitting on death row, fifth guy to die if, uh, if the death yep. penalty comes back <clears throat> in. What, what happens is, does he have any shot? At, I mean, is there any way the governor calls? I mean, who's, who's, is there, is there anybody carrying the ball for him now? Is there any hope yeah, for him? Yeah, Kevin is very fortunate in, this, in the sense that he has this, the largest the law firm in San Francisco is called ORIC, O-R-R-I-C-K, with head, you know, with uh, offices all over the world. You name the international capital, they have offices in it. Right. 1,300 lawyers. Anyway, they took up Kevin's case. Kevin was about to be executed in 2004. He came within literally three hours and 45 minutes of being executed oh, in 2004 when ORIC had, had done this uh, stay of execution request. And uh, they prevailed at the, you know, like they prevailed at the very last, you know, the very last day, uh, they prevailed. And this entitled, uh, this is entitled Kevin to this habeas corpus, the second habeas corpus hearing in, in San Diego in front of Judge Huff. So anyway, he came very close. So Oric, <clears throat> they're not about to go away. They are still committed to, to establishing Kevin's innocence, getting getting this freedom for him, getting him, him exonerated. And they've retained a 25-year veteran FBI agent to go back and kind of go through the whole case again and try to find you know something new that's been overlooked that we that everybody else has missed that would give Kevin a right a right to a yet another habeas corpus hearing. Well, if they bring it up before the same judge, he's going to say the same thing. I know. 
what about the governor? Sorry, Mark, didn't mean to interrupt you. There. The governor is really the, is the best shot at it. But the other day, and this really surprised me, you know, when Governor Brown was governor for eight years, there was no executions and in, 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 none, none under his watch. The, they, they had Rose Byrd. You remember Chief, Chief, Chief Justice Rose Byrd on the California Supreme Court? Yep. She invalidated all the... Uh, he, Brown appointed her. She, she invalidated all the death row sentences, committed them to life. The first time she did it, she committed them to life with the possibility of parole. So people like Sirhan Sirhan and... Um, Charlie Manson, they get parole hearings. They come up, you know, every two or three years. They get they're eligible for parole. Well, the next batch, a couple of years went by, and new whole new batch. California's got 714 people on death row. They put a new batch up, and she got and you know vacated all their sentences. But this time, she did it with uh, without the possibility of parole because she got into a lot of trouble about that. In fact, she got into so much trouble they recalled her. She's the only only Supreme Court justice in the history of the state who got recalled over this issue. But anyway, Brown was very liberal in those days. You know, Governor Moonbeam and all that. And he nobody died under his watch. And But the other day he was quoted as saying, uh, of the 714 people on death row, he's, he has no doubt that all of them are guilty. Well, someone better go have a chat with him and give him a copy of your book. Well, Oric, uh, this Oric Law Firm, the, the lawyer that represents Kevin there, and a guy named Norm Heil, he sent a letter to the governor, said he was really surprised to hear him say that, and here's a copy of the book, and I hope you read it. But that would be the, uh, that would be the Ke Kevin's, you know, more than likely that's his best road out is a clemency, clemency deal. But Brown is in his first term, you know, I mean, of the second go-around. He's... He's he's um, he's you know unlikely in the first first four years to do this. Um, do do we know who the other two assailants are? The assailants no, I'm not so sure. Assailant. I do. I I, I, I just can't. I, I mean, I I have a I have an idea, but I I can't prove it like I can. When I say the name Lee Furrow, I have no compunction about saying Did that. Did they ever get this Lee Furrow guy at anything else? They never did. They never did. Well, is he still alive? Yeah, he's alive. He lives in Cape May, New Jersey. So, so kind, of, kind of a handyman type of guy. Very handy. Wow. Yeah. So the, uh, the murderers get away with it, not because of their own skill, but because of the uh, the greed. Oh, oh God, they had, ter they had terrible skill. They, they had really no skill. Did. These guys had no This is unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, during Kevin's trial, the only explanation I've ever heard that made sense about this whole fiasco, this murdering this innocent family was, there's a prison in, called Vacaville, uh, and during the trial, uh, one of the inmates there said he had a, he was in the hole with another guy, and they were smoking marijuana and getting along great, and the guy said that he was the driver of the Chino Hills car, he was one of the three white guys, and the, the three of them went up there, uh, they had hatchets and knives, and um, they, killed, they killed this family, but they hit the wrong house. It was an Aryan Brotherhood hit gone bad. There That's we go. See, I was, I was, that was my next question, Pat. Is, is what, what was the motive of this murder in the first place? And here we go. go ahead, so finish that's it one, up. That's one. That's one notion. Right. Um, I mean, how however, you... however, the guy who said this in the in the um, Vacaville, he he was two hundred and forty or fifty pound guy, a really big guy, 
and uh, the three guys who came into the bar, none of them were that big. Uh, so he may be full of crap. He might be full of crap. So I was—I've never been able to really—I can't—I have to discount—I have to discount that to some degree. Now the day that the day of the uh, murders, Furl went to the went to the jailhouse in uh, in um, I guess uh, Ontario, and he bailed out a friend of his named Michael Darnell. Now, whether or not Michael Darnell had anything to do with this, I don't know. But it, that's just kind of coincidence to me that that's the day he bails him out, and that's the, then the following night. Uh, I mean, that that night, these poor people are murdered. Did they find any evidence in the house of theft? No evidence of anything there. Well, they claim they found they claim they found a one. I'm telling you, a minuscule drop of blood in a hallway, uh, almost in the living room of the Ryan's house, far from the far from the master bedroom and just one solitary drop uh, on, on the wall. It's just kind that, of hard to... That doesn't make any sense. It really, you know what, what, what happens after these, uh, what happens after a murder is the, the flies come in like crazy. Uh, and they, there's blood, I'm telling you, there's blood everywhere in this room. Every piece of furniture is caked in blood. Um, the blood, the drips of blood on the floor were underneath the victims. And so the flies pick up the blood and then they carry it around. You know, they fly around. You can see it. You can see it on the walls and that type of thing. So, but I don't know how that got there. And they didn't test that blood until the day, the day after they caught Cooper. They brought they they brought him into you know, to Ontario into the jailhouse. And uh, next day they take a vial of his blood and take it over to the house. <laughs> they take it. No, they take it to the lab. And where this guy's this got this one little tiny drop of blood and. That day, you know, that's the day they finally come, they come up with the idea that, uh, oh yeah, this drop of blood matches Cooper. Have you have you met? Uh, pardon me for not knowing the answer to this question. That's why I'm asking you. Have you have you met him? Have you met Cooper? I've, I've met Kevin. I've met, I've been with him uh, two times. I'm, I interviewed him extensively in in at San Quentin in 2009, and then about two uh, two months ago, I spent another couple of hours with him after the book came out. What's he think about? during the day well how does he get by he does uh, he's an interesting character he he doesn't have um, he's no gang affiliation no tattoos I'm telling you it's very hard to go into any prison in the United States and not see tattoos all over people but Kevin has no tattoos no gangs his uh, his file is in, damn near impeccable uh, no anger issues uh, you know that kind of thing he goes out in the yard. He goes out in the yard every day from like I think it's seven till eleven. So he's out in the yard with two hundred, four hundred, three hundred other men every day. And uh, your best chance of getting murdered at San Quentin, or executed at San Quentin, or, is when you're on the yard. Yeah. We have more there than we do uh, in, in the uh, lethal injection procedure. Uh -huh. So he's had, you know, he's been there now twenty-seven years in this in San Quentin. Going out in the yard every day and getting along with people just fine, and uh, no fights. He's not been in one fight in 27 years. And uh, what he does the rest of his day is he's a he's a he he's a, he draws. He, he's a he's an artist, and he he draws all kinds of things. You know, for people he'll drive he'll drive draw pictures of people so they can send to their relatives or loved ones, uh, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. What's he think about? Probably things got getting out. No, of course. I mean, here's a guy who's 27 years sitting. He didn't do it. I mean, it's clear. It's tough. He 
thinks he's, you know, I mean, he's been hosed. Uh, he's been hosed. Does he, does, and, and no anger issues at all? He doesn't really. He doesn't, he doesn't have anger that way, no. Well, he would have been uh, out he, he, and... He turned, you know, I mean, like a lot of these, lot, you know, not all, not all, not all by any means, but many guys on death row will get religion. Mm-hmm. And Kevin got religion. Okay. He's a very religious person. Well, you know, the, uh, if uh, there's an automatic 15-year sentence for escape, and there's no defense for Did that. He, uh, if, he would have, uh, if he escaped, let's uh, uh, see, in 84, I don't know he was supposed to get out, he would have been out by about uh, oh, 99, 2000. He would have been he, out. He would have been long gone, yeah. yeah he would have been out about did, 12 years ago. Did he reach out Did he reach out to you to help get him out? His, uh, he didn't, he, he, he has, um, oh, I don't know, a group of about 5 to 10 people who really support Kevin go to visit him. Um, and they can't. Uh, I was doing a book tour. I, I had written a book in 2008 on the Mumia Abu Jamal. Right. And uh, I was on a book tour in San Francisco, going around like 15 places in the Bay Area, giving my presentation. And these people kept coming to the presentations and stopping me afterwards and asking me to. Said this is a case that's just as bad as the Mumia case, and in many respects, it's worse. Because of because who, of how they had to cheat to convict, who are convict these, Kevin. Who are these people? These ten people that support him are they? Well, they must, I'd say some of them are what you would call like social act, social. You know, like they belong to a social social party. Um, you know, um, they're really committed. You know, they're, they're regular people, but um, they they're anti death penalty big time. Mm-hmm. Therefore, uh, they don't like uh, miscarriages of justice, and they kind of kind of speak for the uh, you know people who don't have a voice. Well, speaking of voices, you won't be hearing mine uh, for the balance of the show, which is just a few minutes, because I'm flying out of town and my cab's here. So I'm <laughs> this has never happened to me before. <laughs> I'm leaving you in the fine, uh, capable hands of Howard and Mark, because the cab drivers say they're giving me dirty looks. All right, bro. Well, thank you. Thanks for letting well, okay. me be on you your show. Keep going. The well, book is called Scapegoat. We keep going. Weeks. You guys keep going. Okay. 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 See, you, see you. Bye, bro. Bye. Where's he going? Uh, Vegas. Okay. I thought he'd never leave. Me too. Okay. <laughs> I have to drive his ass. <laughs> well, Pat, uh, this is, uh, I have, of all the stories, and I've been doing this show with Burrell for over a year now, and, you know, not, you know, I'm no vet, but, um, and I'm a kind of newbie to true crimes, and I, I certainly know who you are and what you are to true crimes. And the fact that you have taken this one and just wrapped your head around it, and there's, in your mind, the way I'm hearing you, and we've been talking for, you know, the better part of an hour, I mean, you're convinced completely, uh, you know. Oh, Absolutely. Uh, any opportunity for something like the Thin Blue Line with this story? Any opportunity for what? Uh, the movie Thin Blue Line that got that particular. Yeah, I did. Of- I did watch it the other day. Um, you know, there. I, I am. I'm in talks right now with a, with a great documentary guy named John Eddington, who did the who did the uh, uh, did a great documentary that was on HBO about uh, Mumia Abu Jamal called "The Case for Reasonable Doubt." And um, he's looking into the possibility of doing the documentary on Kevin's case. Mm-hmm. Well, Erin Moriarty, you guys mentioned her earlier. Yeah. She she did a forty eight hours, two segments of forty eight hours on this case. And, and in two segments, could probably sum it up. Correct. Yeah, she did a good job. Yeah. She even went to see Lee Furrow, who lived in Pennsylvania at the time. Oh, she and, found. Uh, she, he, oh, she went. Ahead. Okay, good. She got him. She surprised him. Knocked on his door, and by God, he talked to her. Uh, and he lied to her. He said, 
he said, no, I had nothing to do with this. I, I took a lie detector test and passed, which was a dirty lie. He didn't take any lie detector test. And, uh, but Aaron didn't know that. It was too bad. She could have busted him right there. Yeah. Speaking of bust, there's no, there is no busting him now, right? Is there any chance oh, statute limitations. Is the statutes run out, correct? No. Well, this, no. The only way he gets out is a new habeas <coughs> corpus is- hearing that would award him a new trial or exonerate him, or right. if the governor gives him clemency. Any shot of that? Even though he, he said the other day, everybody's guilty? Huh. I don't know. I hope so. I can only hope. Did you send him a copy of the book? Sign it up? <laughs> well, well, yeah. He's, he, <clears throat> a, guard, a guard had bought the book, and, uh, and the guard lended, lended, lended it to Kevin. I can't send him... You can't send books to people. They have to come from the publisher. You know, like if you tried to send a book to a prisoner, they'd send it back. How about sending a book to uh, Jerry Brown? Let's try that one out. No, we did. The uh, head head attorney at Oryx sent Jerry Brown a uh, a copy of Scapegoat. Patrick O'Connor, a pleasure having you with us on uh, True Crime. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Howard and Mark. Very nice of you to have me on. uh, This story is just uh, never-ending. You know, Uh, we'll have you back. Uh, There'll probably be... uh, uh, addendums to your book. Quite, uh, quite, so. quite something. Uh, scapegoat. J. Patrick O'Connor. It's quite a read. Angeles on a Saturday. Please come in. Oh, that's the, uh, of course, you have the invite right here to be here live. If you're on the West Coast, we'd love to see you. Thank you very much. J. Right. Patrick Thank O'Connor. You.